continuing our series on forgiveness. And in life's journey, if you've traveled it very long, you can point to times when you've needed to be forgiven. And you can point to times when you needed to forgive. And in our story today, we see both. We look at two twin brothers, Esau and Jacob, how one is seeking forgiveness and how one forgives. What's unique, I think, in this passage is that it's Esau, generally considered one of the bad boys of the Bible, who actually does the forgiving. And so there's a great lesson here for all of us this morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to follow along, I'll begin in Genesis 33 and verse 1. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself sent out ahead or sent on ahead and bowed them to bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children. God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. The background is that these two twin boys had had a terrible falling out 20 years earlier. Esau was the firstborn of the two twins. And there would come a time when their father Isaac would give them each a blessing and there was to be a greater blessing to the firstborn. And so Isaac had called Esau and said, prepare my favorite meal And that meant Esau going out and hunting for it, preparing some kind of venison, bringing it to his father, who was blind by that time in his old age, and he would give him the firstborn blessing. Well, Jacob, who was favored by their mother, Rebekah, was plotted with the mother to deceive Isaac the dad. And so what happened was the blessing that should have gone to Esau then went instead to Jacob. When Esau found out how he had been deceived, how his father had been deceived, how his blessing had been stolen, he was furious. 
And he said, as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to kill my brother. And so Rebecca, the mom, and Jacob, the son, meet together and decide Jacob better flee for his life. And he did. 20 years earlier. Now, 20 years later, Jacob wants to go back home. In essence, he wants to be forgiven. He hasn't corresponded, apparently, with Esau in that time period. And so he's wondering, will my brother even forgive me? And in light of that, there are three thoughts today to share together. The first one is the reach for forgiveness. How does Jacob seek the forgiveness of his brother Esau? First of all, there is attitude. In Genesis 33, in verse 1, notice how he humbly approaches Esau. The Bible says, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. And so he divides them then down to verse 3. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. He showed an attitude of penitence. He showed an attitude of repentance. We can all appreciate that. Now, my grandson, and most of you didn't even know I had one, but I do, and even at the age of 10, he is still developing his perfection, though I think he's almost there. And once in a while, I have to say to him, now, you need to say, I'm sorry. Sorry! That's not really being sorry, is it? And eventually, perhaps there are tears and a humbling of spirit. And, I'm sorry. And you see the difference in the attitude. And one who truly wants to be forgiven will approach the offended person or persons with a humble and penitent attitude. I was talking with Gene Berry, one of our members who's also an attorney and recently has become an elder in our fellowship. And Gene was telling me as an attorney, and I found this fascinating. He said, Tim, do you know that often it is more the appearance and the attitude of the one who's on trial that gains the favor of the jury even more than the substance of the argument? He said, I have lost cases where I should have won because the proof was all in my client's favor, but the jury found them not to be likable or honest, or remorseful. He said what they wear and the attitude with which they come into the courtroom, the remorse that they show, often plays them in greater favor for mercy and forgiveness than any argument that you can make. Now, this has never happened to any of you. But recently, I was pulled over for speeding. I have to tell you, I honestly didn't see the sign. I was in Indiana going to see my father for Thanksgiving. It was late in the night, and we were close, about 25 miles. No, I'm sorry, about five miles from their home. I couldn't wait, and I'm barreling along, and all of a sudden, oh, brother. So I pull over, and uh, the officer approaches the car, and I say, Officer, I I'm sorry. Uh, here's my license. Here's my registration. And, uh, you know, I, I just didn't realize that I was speeding. And, and so I tried to be apologetic and courteous. And as soon as the officer went back to the car, their car, to check me out, you know, on all that registration and stuff, my whole family's telling me, you shouldn't be that nice. You shouldn't be that honest. You're overtelling it. 
And when the officer came back and said, that's okay, sir, just slow it down. We don't want you to kill anybody. (laughs) I said, and I said to my family, see, it pays to be courteous and respectful. And officers in general will tell you, it is the attitude that makes a difference. And so when we seek earthly forgiveness, attitude is important. He bowed to the ground seven times. And repeatedly through this portion, you'll find him saying to Esau, you're my Lord, I'm your servant. Secondly, there was gift giving. Before, in chapter 32, he sent hordes and herds of goats and all kinds of cattle and sheep and animals to to let his brother know, I'm sorry, please take these. I'm just trying to let you know I'm sorry and I want your forgiveness. And, you know... Gift giving, as I studied out, apparently was an ancient way of really trying to make amends and apologize and say, I'm sorry, and ask for forgiveness. And that's why later, as I closed the reading today, even though Esau didn't need all that Jacob sent because he already had plenty of his own, and even so, he didn't want to take it, he said, look, I've forgiven you. The Bible says that Jacob insisted, so he took it as a symbol, an indicator, yes, Jacob, I have forgiven you. Now, in the modern area, aren't you guys thankful for Frankstown Gardens and some of the floral shops around? In fact, I find it interesting, if you ever go to buy flowers for the lady you've offended, that they even have a little card that says, from the doghouse. <laughs> and uh, Now, I've never had to buy any, of course. I never offend my spouse. But for some of the rest of you, it's a hint, okay? There may be a time when gift-giving is helpful. In fact, as I went to the internet and I studied some of the ways that you can apologize and some of the ways that you can say you're sorry, I found one very interesting. It said, if you know of a charity that is a favorite with the person you've offended, then make a donation to that charity in their name and then let them know, I know I've offended you, I'm sorry, I want to apologize, please forgive me. I know this charity is important to you and I have made a donation in your honor to them because I know it's important to you. So what you're saying by the gift is, look, you're important to me. Our relationship is important to me. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And so Jacob has an attitude that is humble and penitent. Jacob has gifts saying, look, I'm sorry. I want to make this right toward you. And then finally, back in Genesis 32 in verse 9, the Bible tells us of a prayer that Jacob prays. And he says, oh God, please save me from the hand of my brother Esau. And he prays it for two reasons. One, obviously he wants to escape his brother's vengeance and anger that could not only destroy him but his family as well. And he wants to be forgiven. But along with that, he knows that God has promised that God would bless him and make of him a great nation. He says, so God, honor your promise. And God, I want to be forgiven. And Lord, turn Esau's heart. And the Bible does tell us even the king's hand is in the Lord's heart. He can change the most vengeful, hateful, bitter person to bring about forgiveness. But sometimes it comes only through prayer where we just say, God, I've given gifts. I've apologized. I've tried to be humble. Lord, if there's going to be forgiveness, you're going to have to do it here. Attitude, gift giving, prayer. Now, when we come to God and the forgiveness that we desire from him for our sins and our wrongs, is there a way that we approach him? Is there a reaching out for that forgiveness? 
Well, first of all, there's confession. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God, I'm sorry. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I realize on the one hand, you may not remember every sin you've ever committed. In fact, I almost have to smile in a sense when we sometimes in church will say, all right, take a moment and confess your sins. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I need a lot longer than a moment. I'm like that one lady who went to a church where they believed baptizing would wash away all your sins. And they said, get in this pool, we're going to wash away all your sins. And she said, you're going to wash away all my sins in that little pool? <laughs> I don't think so. And, uh, you know, and in a sense, one moment isn't enough. But on the other hand, it may be that there is a specific sin against the will of God that you know you have offended in, you know is wrong in your life. And as the Spirit of God and the Scripture of God and the conscience God has given you and the offense you've created comes to your heart, you specifically can say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me of that sin. And then often I find in that moment, I go to Luke in chapter 13, 18 and verse 13, where the tax collector went into the temple. He didn't give a litany of all his sins. He just knew he was a sinner. And he said, have God, oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And there are times in that moment of confession, I can't remember every sin I've committed. I know they're daily and often hourly and often by the minute. But I can just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me. He said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Luke chapter 3 and verse 8, John Baptist said to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, Bring forth fruit or produce fruit that represents repentance. You see, it's not merely a matter of just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But there's evidence of a desire to do differently because we know what we do is wrong and sinful. I'm not saying we become perfect. I'm simply saying there is a striving within our spirit to say, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore because I know it's sinful and I know it's wicked. And as Chuck Swindoll says, it's not perfection, but it is direction. And then finally, we often find attached in the scriptures our forgiveness from him with a forgiving spirit on our own. We pray it almost every Sunday. Forgive us our debts as what? We forgive our debtors or those who've offended and so we reach out for God's forgiveness. He said, if you confess it, I'll forgive it. But it's often accompanied by a spirit that says, Father, by your grace, I don't want to do that again. And Father, I know that I've been offended as well. And how can I expect you to forgive me if I'm not willing to forgive others? The reach for forgiveness. And by the way, I just want to say this this morning, that we all know what it is to reach out for forgiveness. But can I ask you a question today? Is there somebody who's reaching out to you wanting your forgiveness? And are you willing to give it by the grace of God? Number two, I see the, the, the relief of forgiveness. Now talk about relief. I was talking with Tim and Lisa this morning. How Nicole had her uh, kidney out. And, uh, not, not her kidney, I'm sorry. Her, uh, what was it? Appendix. And it relieved six years of pain. 
Can you imagine the relief? Now, I love the verse here in verse 4 of Exodus 33, where here's Jacob, not knowing how Esau's going to respond. Esau starts running to him, and Jacob's perhaps thinking, oh no, but he gets to him, and he hugs him, and they wept. The Bible says, oh, the relief of 20 years of wanting forgiveness, and after 20 years being willing to forgive, and as they wept, I can only imagine the relief that poured forth from their spirits and cascaded over their beings. Forgiven! Forgiving! Oh, the relief. Psalm 51 that Jerry read for us this morning. David, having committed adultery and murder, comes before the Almighty and says, Cleanse me and I shall be clean. And then three times in those verses 9 through 13, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let there be joy in the bones that have been crushed. When there's forgiveness, there's rejoicing. And when there's forgiveness, there's renewal. There's a return of energy to serve God and live life and enjoy relationships. We're not bound down by that sense of being unforgiven or unforgiving. Oh, what a relief. I love Pilgrim's Progress. It's an old Christian classic. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to do it. It's not the Bible, but it's a wonderful story of salvation. And Christian or pilgrim is first pictured as having this huge load of burden on his back. He can barely walk with it on it. And of course, it's symbolizing his sin. And there's a beautiful story of forgiveness when he comes to the cross. And that load, that burden of sin busts off and falls away as he's forgiven. Let me read it to you. And Bunyan, John Bunyan wrote this, wrote it because of a dream. He said, now I saw in my dream that the highway which Christian was to go on was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below at the bottom a sepulcher or a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, or equal to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back. What relief. And began to tumble and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and with a bear, and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder. For it was very surprising to him that at the sight of the cross should his, it should ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again till even the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him and said, Peace be with thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. And the second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. The third set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it with which he bid him run on. And as he ran, that he should give it to the celestial gate. So they went on their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. 
Oh, the relief of being forgiven. When God forgives us of our sins and saves our soul, then even as believers, when we go astray and we come back and our Lord forgives us, oh, it's so wonderful to be restored in fellowship. And then to know it from an earthly perspective, I thought of my own journey. I can remember first attending Hebron 16 years ago. And I would sit in there having gone through uh, a number of situations with my former family and so on. And, and uh, we'd come to that prayer in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And it would stick in my throat. I said, I can't forgive. And finally one Sunday, I can't explain it. But all of a sudden as they began to pray it as a congregation, the words fell from my lips and tumbled from my heart. Forgive as I forgive. And when others had left the sanctuary for a half an hour, I sat in that building up there and I wept the catharsis of the cleansing and the relief of forgiving. On the other hand, because of issues with the former family that I had, I hadn't seen some of those relatives in 12 years. There'd been no contact. And then I had heard that some relatives down south would be willing to to see me again. And I made a phone call and I again used my grandson as a pawn. (laughs) I said, would you like to see him? (laughs) Because I could bring him by. And I don't forget, I got a couple of moments from their home and I just called and said, I want to make sure I have the right directions. And I was kind of really doing it to make sure is this going to work. And I'll never forget pulling into the driveway and all three of them standing on the porch waiting to receive me. Hallelujah. Oh, brothers and sisters, there's such a relief in forgiveness. And there's such a relief in forgiving. You don't hold on to the bitterness and the hatred and the anger and the vengeance anymore. You let it go to God. And then finally, how are we doing on time? I can't see a thing up there. What time is it, Katrina? Five minutes what? Five minutes of nine. We're okay. Even if it were five after, we'd be okay. In Genesis 33, it says in verse 9, after they had wept and re- reconciled and there had been forgiving and forgiveness, Jacob says, Esau, When I saw you disposed to me favorably, it was like seeing the face of God. I find that fascinating for a number of reasons. First of all, just to think about the face of God. You see, Jesus said in John 4 and verse 24, God is spirit. And so you ask yourself, does a spirit have a face? And yet back in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20, God said to Moses, you can't see my face and live. So how is it to see the face of God? Well, we could use a couple of big theological terms. One is anthropomorphic. anthropomorphic, And this is the idea that God, though he is spirit, will use human descriptions we understand, like face, hands, arms, legs, etc., to give us a better understanding of himself and his love and grace and mercy toward us. 
Second, there are what we're called theophanies. These are appearances of God upon earth, taking a form which we can visually see and experience to express himself to us. And you'll find a number of times God coming down in an earthly way, expressing himself to us. Of course, ultimately, it's the incarnation where Jesus said in his flesh upon the earth to the disciples, he that has seen the Father has seen me. But in Genesis 32, just before this meeting with Esau, the Bible says God had taken a human form, if you will, had come and he and Jacob had wrestled together and Jacob wouldn't let him go. And God said, you have prevailed with God and man. And then Jacob let him go. And Jacob said, the name of this place will be Peniel. I have seen the face of God and have survived. And so we have a most spiritual moment. And yet when Jacob is forgiven and Esau forgives, do you know what Jacob says? This is a most spiritual moment. It is like seeing the face of God. And one of the greatest spiritual moments you will ever have in your life is when you know you're forgiven or you know you have forgiven. Number two, to see the face of God is associated with blessing. You see, in Numbers chapter 6, God said, I want you to put my name upon my people. And he said to Aaron the high priest, I want you to give a benediction, a blessing to the people. And here's what you will say. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, two of those verses are associated with God's blessing through his face. He said, make his face shine upon you. Some of the rabbis believe that had to do when earlier God had showed Moses not his face, but his hinder parts. And Moses' face glowed for days from the glory of God. And it's as though God is saying, when I smile upon you or I lift up my face towards you, it's giving you my glory and my goodness. He said, then my light of my countenance upon you. And Bible expositors commentary said it's like saying may God smile on you. I visited Linda Smith recently in the hospital and she was telling how after the surgery Dr. Lee came in and she said when he smiled I knew everything was okay. When God smiles upon us. Literally that could also be when God pays attention to you. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody that wouldn't look at you? Put down the paper, cut off the TV, or in our world, quit texting and pay attention to me. And God saying, I pay attention to you. I smile at you. I put my glory upon you. And he said, when I was forgiven, Jacob said, and Esau said, when I forgave you, it was like seeing the face of God. Oh, what a blessing. And finally, we cannot think about the face of God without thinking of Jesus. Because as I said earlier, Jesus said, if you've seen my face, you've seen God's face. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And when you talk about forgiveness, the pinnacle of it, the ultimate of it is our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 and verse 32, the Bible says, forgive others. As in Christ, 
God forgave you. When we look at that cross and that torment and that crucifixion and that shed blood, it was for the forgiveness of our sins. And then our Savior, giving us the great example, looks at those nailing Him to the cross and those mocking His name and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen emulating his Savior and our Lord as they cast the stones upon him in Acts chapter 7 and verse and chapter 8. And Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And so as we look at Jesus, we have the ultimate in being forgiven of our sins. And when we look at Jesus, we have the ultimate in the example of forgiving others who've offended us. The poet said it well. To err is human. To forgive divine.